I'm Sophie Waldman. I was a software engineer at Google for nearly two years working in the search department. And, uh, you know, in my time there, just kind of saw more and more that was going on at the company that I felt I wasn't okay with and started speaking up until uh, Google decided they had had too much and got rid of me. Catherine Spears was fired for writing code and submitting it on a project that her team works on. The statements that Google is making, they're very misleading at best. I would say they don't at all reflect anything I understand from Catherine or from the four of us about uh, what is actually going on. What we actually did was nothing like what they're trying to characterize it as. Yes, obviously, you know, I was only at Google for, uh, you know, a little less than two years, so I don't have quite as much perspective on the history of the company as Lawrence would, but there was absolutely a shift that even just over the past couple of years in how Google responds uh, to employee concerns. It's gone from, you know, listening, even if sort of begrudgingly, and, you know, at least making the pretense of engaging to just, you know, at this point, it seems like they're trying to get rid of anyone who speaks up and start making examples of them. Cloud in particular, yeah, it seems like what they really want right now is, you know, they they want to be the leader in the industry and they, you know, kind of don't care in particular about uh what sorts of projects they're working on so much as that they're getting contract. To, to people outside of that culture, that seems like such a shift from uh, don't do evil or don't be evil or whatever, right? Yeah, don't be evil is actually still in Google's code of conduct, uh, it, or I guess the alphabet code of conduct now. It's in the last line. And remember, don't be evil. And if you see something that you think isn't right, speak up. That's still there, but... Uh, that's not the way it's, it feels like the company is acting anymore. Yeah, I, I wouldn't characterize myself as on the forefront of anything, really. I was just, you know, sort of in the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time, whichever. Uh, really kind of humbling all the support I've gotten uh, just for myself and for the overall cause. From what I've heard, uh, you know, employees from the Google Cambridge office, uh, the Massachusetts office where I worked, you know, at least. 80 of them came together uh, the week the week after I was fired in protest and to discuss what was going on. And I think really just overall, if anything, uh, what Google has done hasn't uh, scared people off the way they were hoping. It's just inspired us to speak up, to be louder and to band together it's about how we're actually being treated and, uh, you know, thinking, treating us like a, just sort of you know, completely replaceable programming machines as part of that, you know, that they don't uh, feel we actually need to know what we're working on. And part of it is also, uh, you know, treating us fairly and re responding in a transparent way to harassment and responding even just consistently or at all. From some of the stories I've heard, uh, you know, this is especially for marginalized workers, but for everyone, it's, a, it's an ongoing issue. Hi, Lawrence. It's really good to be with you on the show today. Um, for folks who are not familiar with what's been happening at Google, can you tell them a little bit about these uh, firings of activists and organizers um, and, and uh, 
what you're doing about that today? First of all, thanks for uh, having me on. There's a lot that's been going on in uh, Google the last couple of years uh, in the kind of tech industry more generally, and I think Google workers have kind of a bit of leading that charge. Uh, what's been going on lately is Google has been firing a large number of people involved with organizing. Um, myself and three others, uh, Sophie, Rebecca, and Paul, uh, were fired the Monday before Thanksgiving. It was just taken to some people calling us to Thanksgiving for. Um, Larry and Sergey announced that they were, uh, the founders announced that they were leaving uh, Google and Alphabet uh, not long after that. So I've been calling us to Thanksgiving six. <laughs> but, uh, that hasn't really taken off. I'm not the I'm not the clever one in the bunch, unfortunately. And then and then just this week, uh, well, I think on Friday, um, a fifth organizer, uh, Catherine Spears, was uh, also fired. For, yeah, I was, uh, I was just reading the Julie Carey Wong story in the Guardian about that. Yeah, I haven't read that particular story. You know, there's been a lot of stories. One interesting thing for us has always been that the press is very hungry to cover Google. You know, Google's a hot topic sometimes. There's so much going on. And sometimes it's, it feels like it's difficult for us to keep the focus on the worker-led movement. But at the same time, the, the media actually has been pretty pretty good lately at doing some pretty pretty solid reporting, some pretty good coverage. and making connections that I think are important for people to make between the different things that are going on. Mm -hmm. So things mm -hmm. like, you know, sexual harassment, things like retaliation against organizers, things like the company taking on work that is unethical. Um, we don't see these things as kind of separate issues as Google workers. You know, we've always seen all of these as essentially, you know, our kind of right as workers to have a say in what the company that we work for does extends to everything, you know, whether it be paying out uh, somebody like Andy Rubin, you know, who got, people have asked me, have I gotten a severance for being fired? And I said, well, no, I guess I didn't do something bad enough. You know, Andy Rubin allegedly uh, basically assaulted uh, one of his subordinates in a hotel room and got $90 million for it. Wow. Uh, and that's what that's what spurred the walkout just over a year ago. And here we are, the five of us, getting nothing, being fired for these supposed kind of pretextual violations of, of various policies that don't make sense and that in most cases we haven't even really seen. You know, they haven't told us much of the details about why we were fired. The interesting thing with Catherine's story is that they have started to say quite a lot more publicly which is unexpected because Google has always turned everyone up and down that they don't talk about personnel decisions. Mm. And that's what they said when it came out that they gave Andy Rubin $90 million to leave. They said, we don't talk about personnel decisions. But they're so afraid, I guess, of the worker organizers that they're starting to try and tell their story more because people aren't buying it. You know, people hear these kind of explanations like, oh, he looked at a calendar. Oh, she looked at a document that was accessible to the entire company. Wait, did she share the document with the public? No, they're not saying she shared it with the public. What is this all about? You know, nobody, nobody buys these excuses. And so the company is kind of desperately trying to, to gain back that foothold. But unfortunately for them, they're not going to be able to because the actual truth is that we didn't do anything wrong. It's interesting. I um, subscribe to this great newsletter from labor reporter David Bacon, and uh, it's it's very lengthy when he sends it out. And this morning it was about uh, you four, 
And one of the things he said is, what did the four really do? They tried to put human rights into action inside the company. They protested sexual harassment. They told Google not to bid on a Trump contract to put Homeland Security databases into the cloud, facilitating the shameful detention of children and parents. They questioned Google for hiring Miles Taylor, who's chief of staff to Trump's Homeland Security, Christian Nelson. Um, yeah, and that Miles uh, Taylor decision is especially important because one of the things that we were objecting to right around the time when we were fired was that the company had started censoring workers who were expressing concern about Miles Taylor. And the reason that I got very involved in that discussion inside the company was not just because of objections to Miles Taylor, it was because they were censoring not just kind of people known for organizing, but a wide range of, of kind of workers not particularly involved in, in what you think of as activism were very concerned about, you know, people who said, you know, my family came from Central America to this country. Does the company not support me anymore? You know, my, you know, I moved here from the Middle East. I'm a Muslim. You know, it was the company no longer supporting visas for people like me to come work with me. Like, am I no longer working welcome here? Mm. You know, hire, and, and the company's response wasn't to answer those questions. The company's response was to claim that those questions violated some vague new community guidelines that they introduced and delete the questions and delete the communication. And that's, that's kind of an escalation in this, you know, it's not just blowing off questions and giving kind of non answers, right? You know, it's one thing to say, you say, well, why did you fire? Why did you give Andy Rubin $90 million? You know, what did you give to the victim? And they say, Oh, we don't talk about personnel decisions. It's another thing to say, Oh, you asked the question, you know, why did you hire Miles Taylor? So what we're going to do is delete that question and send you an email chastising you for calling out Miles Taylor. You know, how, how dare you be mean to him for something that he did in his official capacity as, you know, the right hand of a cabinet level official in the United States government. Right. You know? And so Bacon's reporting is, is talking about a company called uh, IR... Uh, IRL <laughs> Consulting? I, 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 IRL maybe. Um, yeah, I'm just... Uh, just it's a it's a it's a really long article and I've been scrolling. Um, yeah, it's funny. I actually opened that article uh, to start reading right before I hopped on this call. And I oh, that's thought, oh, amazing! I want time. I'll read it later. It's really <laughs> yeah. IRI consultants and it says that one of the things that Google did is installed a tool allowing Google managers to know when any worker organizes an event with more than 100 participants. And that just yeah, you've been at Google for 11 years uh, before uh, this this sudden firing, and you said in the in the past couple of years you've seen things start to change. And I think that I, I'm guessing that employees at Facebook and other large tech companies would say similar things. But this is the period where Google went from having a "Don't be evil" slogan to kind of removing that and starting to take on you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, all working more closely with government programs that folks who believe in human rights and human dignity, um, I think you have great reason to be alarmed. Is, 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 is that, is your experience really changed in what it's like to work at that company? I mean, I, I started working at Google in 2005 and I've worked there, I worked there 11 years because I took uh, three years off in the middle. And okay. when I came back from those three years, things started to feel a little different. And I would say that the changes were subtle at first, but then about six months after that, the Damore memo was uh -huh. sort of passed around. And this was the and one where it was, it was arguing that men are kind of essentially better at tech jobs than women. He basically wrote this kind of essay or memo or whatever you want to call it, arguing 
that there are inherent reasons that women are bad at, say, engineering. Um, a thing that, you know, first of all, is based on kind of pseudoscience. Uh, the, the same sort of work that, you know, people who argue that, you know, different races have different intelligence characteristics, uh, things right. that things that real demographers and sociologists and psychologists have never been able to find any actual evidence for because I think those of us who've spent enough time in, for example, the tech industry working with women in engineering know that the difficulties that women face in engineering have very little to do with intelligence and engineering work and everything to do with kind of classically male-dominated culture, you know? Mm. And I think that that's actually potentially gotten worse in the tech industry over the last few years as more more people have kind of hopped on the tech bandwagon because in the same way that people used to go to finance or law or something, because it was a high-paying job, it was the sort of thing that their parents were, you know, really into. Mm. Um, it was the sort of thing that, you know, you could talk about at the country club or something, I guess. Um, it's, it's, you know, that's given rise to what people say in San Francisco. You know, people talk about these tech bros, they call it. And the truth, the truth is that, you know, Google actually did a better job for a very long time of hiring people who didn't have bad attitudes in that way. You know, I mean, nothing's perfect, but I, I think Google, even even recently, has done much better than the industry at large in not hiring people who are kind of in it for this opportunistic sort of thing. You know, you hear people say this in San Francisco all the time, that there are these tech people here who are just here, you know, to make a, a quick buck over a few years and then run back to wherever they're from. Mm. And, you know, my experience is that people who move to San Francisco to work for Google are less likely to have that attitude now. And, and we're kind of entirely lacking that attitude when I moved here for Google, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. And like pe people are looking for something longer term or that's been the history. Like they want to be part of, of this company. Well, I think people are, people are interested in being part of a community, right? And that's, that includes the work, but that includes more than just the work. It includes the culture. And so part of what's so scary about what Google is doing now in destroying this culture is that it's not just about, you know, crushing organizing. That may be their motivation, but the result is that the culture that nurtured all these sort of bright people who are interested in doing work for, for really kind of positive reasons in a lot of cases uh, are no longer finding this, the workplace that they join and the workplace that they wanted to join. And how is that going to affect the company's kind of long-term prospects? How is that going to affect the world as a company like Google shifts away from workers who care? Right, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's huge. And one of the things uh, Matt and I talked about on a recent show was that uh, both Google and Facebook have lost their spots in the top 10 best companies to work for, but they keep making money. And I liked in the, the David Bacon article, he goes through all of the reasons that solidarity across different kinds of industries and different kinds of jobs, like you know, Google engineers are uh, different in terms of their skills and uh, education and the money they earn from uh, service workers or security guards, but we all share this common struggle. And he, he talks about the dangers of crackdowns on workplace activism and workplace organizing, but he also says if we're able to organize these spaces, um, that we can, that's how we change the world. And this is quoting from his, his article today. He says, if we have strong unions at Google and Microsoft run by militant workers, it'll be easier to win the things we need, like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All or immigration reform. We could end the wars that have gone on for years. And he goes on. Do you think that 
the loss of of a activist culture is a is a threat at Google. I mean, it seems like they have really been this is such drastic action. And uh, I think the first people heard of activism at Google probably was the protests of, around uh, the sexual harassment. I think I think that's when it first really kind of broke out into the public eye. It was when people started really feeling like, and you know, a couple of leaders like a uh, like a uh, Claire Stapleton and Meredith Whitaker, who um, left the company last spring over kind of retaliation against organizers. Uh, the walkout was kind of the moment where people at Google sort of started really seeing that the old system was no longer working, that collective action was necessary for engineers and salespeople, you know, the high paid people employed directly by Google, and that public kind of actions were very important to put pressure on the company. Whereas it wasn't that long ago when things kind of happened organically when conversations with leadership actually made a difference. And so what a lot of us used to be, I think, more focused on was worrying less about some of these aspects of our own conditions, although there were concerns going further back. Uh, but a lot of us were, were focused historically more on those service workers at the company. Mm -hmm. Because to a lot of us, the idea that a cafeteria worker or a security guard is different than us just because they do a job that is allegedly less skilled, uh, which is, a, by the way, if you've ever worked in a big kitchen, you know that, that less skilled is, is not really the right way to put that. That's a hard job that mm. takes a lot of skills. And to see people, you know, I used to do volunteer first aid on the campus in Mountain View many years ago, and I would be concerned when people who worked in the kitchen would get hurt and would be more worried about their hospital bills than about the injury. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, they worked for some catering contractor and they weren't getting the great kind of health coverage that, you know, I was getting as an engineer. And, you know, we talked about that more internally and more quietly, but it's concerned a lot of people for a long time, this kind of, what we sort of have thought, come to think of as this dual class system. And what people don't realize is that, you know, something like half of Google's workforce, depending on how you count, are these, these people employed by third party companies providing services. And those range from security guards, cafeteria workers. In a lot of cases, they're doing business analytics or even engineering. And they're not getting the same benefits, the same pay, the same treatment, the same level of what, well, until recently, what we thought of as job security. It's a weird thing for me to be talking about having been kind of abruptly fired, but right. you know, um, there were some statements read. We had this rally when Rebecca and I were put on leave and some of these, um, what we call PVCs at Google, these vendors, um, employed people, they were so uncomfortable with the idea of making statements themselves with their names or their faces on it that, um, somebody read their statements on their behalf, you know? And what one of them said is, you know, we don't get put on admin leave. We don't get interrogated. We just get summarily fired. Wow. And, wow. you know, there's this huge escalation where now we are getting kind of, you know, relatively speaking compared to the way things used to be at Google, summarily fired. But it's still not the same as that. You know, they don't, they don't say, oh, we just don't like you anymore. You know, you can go now. Like, you don't have a job now. Um, 
this tension between uh, full-time employees with great benefits and, you know, the, the thing about uh, these companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, and Silicon Valley with huge campuses is like, you know, you have all these amenities, you're kind of catered to, you have uh, buses that go uh, to, you know, San Francisco to, to get people back home. Um, and you're talking about a huge contractor workforce that just uh, doesn't have this. Have you seen that? contractors uh, becoming a bigger and bigger part of the business or has that always been uh, a feature of, of Google? You know, I don't, I don't even know the numbers from way back. So I don't know if this 50 per, how, how long this 50% number has been true. It's definitely been true for a few years. Okay. Um, and that's part of that is because I don't know about things like, like business analysts, you know, there were this group of analysts in Pittsburgh who uh, actually uh, formed a union uh, affiliated with the United Steelworkers in September. Uh, who work on the Google Shopping product and a bunch of us who are full-time engineers, including myself, uh, help them out with mm -hmm. that drive, trying to be, you know, supportive and get them what they need and passing petitions around and things like that. Uh, the cafeteria workers, the cleaners, the security guards, that's been an issue for a very long time. Uh, I remember, you know, a friend's partner was uh, volunteering to teach cleaners uh, English like advanced English, you know, reading comprehension and things like that at the Mountain View campus in 2006. Wow. Um, so, so this, this kind of work a, has been not an effort organized by the company. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you think that uh, the company was more open to those kinds of efforts? I mean, you have ostensibly the founders leaving, right? Um, what does, what does that say? What do you think is next for Google and what's next for you and, and the, um, the Thanksgiving four or the Thanksgiving six. What's next for Google is really hard to say right now. I think the company is at a turning point and it looks like what they want to do is become almost like a typical kind of government contractor like Raytheon or something. And, wow. and maybe they do, you know, and I hope, I hope that workers will continue to not let them get away with it. I know there's a lot of, a lot of workers organizing inside the company. I think in this kind of bizarre sense, uh, firing me and three other people was sort of a, a gift to the organizing community inside of the company uh, because it kind of took the gloves off, you know, and said, this is, this is what we're really about now. Wow. And people are not happy about it. And so what's next for Google really depends on how management reacts to that struggle. You know, they can keep cracking down like they have been lately. And I think it's just going to get uglier and uglier. And who knows, maybe it will start to affect, the price of shares at some point. I'm not, I'm not really up on that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I worry about the long-term viability of a place that, that built its products on people. You know, we built these products in this culture that, that is rapidly kind of being annihilated. And I, I worry about what those products will look like. Right, because the the users live downstream from the policies that you're you've been fighting and the work you've been doing. So when they have a crackdown saying, "Oh, you can't uh, use these shared documents or you can't do research um, that is of an activist nature, even though you have all these tools to do it," if they push that downstream or if they push out the more empathetic uh, and compassionate employees, that doesn't bear well for the hundreds of millions of users. No, it doesn't. And, and I think that that extends not just to, to sort of ethical quandaries about products, but the same people who are concerned about those sort of things are the people best suited to build these products mm. 
for I other reasons. Agree. You know, yeah. I worked on I worked on Google Web Search. I was on the site reliability team for the search engine for many years. And the same sort of people who cared about things like, you know, Maven, who cared about things like James Damore, who cared about things like Andy Rubin getting $90 million, are the same people who, you know, took very seriously this commitment that, you know, the work that we were doing to keep the search engine running made a difference in people's lives. You know, it wasn't ever just about the money for very many of us. You know, we all cared about the user. And when you replace a workforce like that, with a workforce that's just there to collect a paycheck, what do you what do you get? You know, do you get a search engine that respects people's privacy? I don't know. Do you get a search engine that even gives you the best results? I'm not sure. Wow. You know, it's such a radical shift that we'll see what sort of people the company is able to hire, what sort of people are working there in another five years, ten years, and I'm. I think it'll be interesting to find out. I don't know that I'll be happy with what I see. Uh, oh, I, I know that uh, the the four workers have fired, filed a complaint with the U.S. National Labor Relations Board. Do you have specific hopes for what will come out of that? Uh, the NLRB process is is kind of complicated, and I'm obviously not a lawyer. So, you know, I'm told there's a pretty wide range. For my part, I think the thing that's probably most important to me more than anything is to try and get the company to agree to reverse some of these policies that they've changed, like this this limit on meeting room sizes that you were talking about, like the community moderation rules that I was talking about that were censoring questions about Miles Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, these, sort of, these sort of rules are designed to limit the ability of workers to know what's going on and to organize around it. My hope is that, you know, they'll be required to reverse these policies and tell the employees very clearly that they've done so and why. You know, there, there's a possibility of things like reinstatement and back pay and things like that. I don't know at this stage whether those things are going to happen. But I don't know that anything's off the table right now. Um, right. But if I had to pick one thing, you know, if they gave me a big list of options and said, Lawrence, you can only have one of these, what would you do? I would say reverse the policies because, you know, reinstatement would, I guess, be, be useful for me or for Sophie or, you know, back pay would be good for Rebecca. but these policies affect everyone. Maybe it's silly for me to focus on this bigger fight that I was having while I was inside of the company now that I've been fired instead of worrying about my job. But I think that what you find with worker organizers at Google is that, you know, there are hundreds of people organizing and especially with the recent concerns more every day. And I think that you would find that most of those people would say exactly what I said. The changes for the company at large, the changes for the culture, and how these things affect, you know, the workplace and the world are more important to any of us than our individual situations, you know, and that's, that's the sort of privilege that we have as, you know, pretty well-paid engineers. While things used to be better at Google, you know, like I said, they weren't perfect. You know, we always had these issues with, you know, kitchen staff not having good enough health insurance. And there were people like Erica Baker raising concerns around the time that I first left the company about pay disparities uh, between people on the basis of, you know, what schools they went to, people's race or national origin, and especially gender, Mm. you know, and I think that it's something that was hard to talk about for a long time. And I remember Google not wanting us to talk about our salaries when I first started. So Erica collected a large number of people volunteered to, to disclose their salaries. And 
if I remember correctly, what it showed is that that women were being underpaid pretty systematically at Google. And I think there is uh, still a lawsuit pending around that issue. So a whole range of issues. But if you speak out from inside the company, you put yourself personally at risk. And I think that that's the essence of, of union busting, right? Is you stop the most concerned people, you stop the activists and the organizers. But I'm glad to hear that this has been uh, a, a wake-up call to employees who are still inside the company. Yeah, I think I think employees inside the company see that this could happen to them, this could happen to anyone, uh, that unless what they want to do is, is kind of myopically focus on the work directly in front of them and never never even look at the big picture, let alone discuss it or do something about it, uh, their job is not safe anymore. And, you know, the, the intention of union busting, you know, from a company like Google or from anyone is to instill fear in that way with the idea that that fear will keep people from doing things that the company doesn't want, you know, keep people from asking those hard questions. Uh, but unfortunately, Google has created a culture uh, centered on raising concerns, asking questions, knowing what's going on. And so workers are scared, but workers are overcoming that fear by fighting to save it. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this. And good luck to you. I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to leave folks today with uh, the newsletters that I read to stay on top of political technology uh, and prepare for this show. Um, one of them is the campaign and elections newsletter. I call it campaign tech newsletter, uh, and it's weekly. Um, that one uh, has specifically political news from campaigns and elections. A lot of it is focused these days on digital politics as uh, things trend that way in the industry. And they also cite uh, interesting articles from around the web uh, for political professionals. I really enjoy it. I almost always get a couple of articles that I want to read. Um, another one that I've just started re reading is a weekly newsletter from CODA. CODA's is called the Authoritarian Tech Newsletter. That's full of stories about bad things that are happening all over the world. Um, and uh, you, you can find um, the dark side of just about any company. Uh, but very interesting newsletter, uh, some really good reporters working uh, on that. Uh, another weekly newsletter I really like is the For What It's Worth, or FWIW newsletter, uh, that comes out on Fridays from Acronym. Acronym is a digital agency focused on helping uh, liberal politics uh, compete uh, online. And uh, I really like that newsletter. It shows uh, spending for the presidential race uh, on digital, so you can keep up with which candidates are doing what. They also analyze different ads from the candidates. Uh, great stuff. And then another one that we've talked about already a little bit here on Adriel versus the Oligarchs is Popular Information, and that's Jed Legume's um, newsletter that uh, comes out daily. It's a paid newsletter, but there is a, a free version as well um, that's, that's less frequent. And that one is, it's both, um, it's more about politics uh, and, and news, so sometimes he's writing about impeachment, but he's been incredible at covering the issue of Trump uh, lying in Facebook ads, and that's one reason I really enjoy it. And Judd's uh, background is great. He helped uh, create Think Progress, uh, the popular progressive newsletter that, um, 
that uh, went under this year. So if you want to keep up with um, great reporting from a progressive and investigatorial standpoint, popular information is a good one. Enjoy. Enjoy.